You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Amen. Don't you like that? God, God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, came out of eternity into our existence, time and space, uh, to come so that we could know who God is, so that we could understand Him. Uh, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so we can understand who God is and the things that God says. Uh, I love that. So last week, we started a series. Today is the middle section, and Christmas Eve will be the final chapter of a little short Christmas series. I don't always do Christmas series every year, but this year I thought it would be good to look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and see what each one says about the birth of Christ. And so we began last week, and we said this, that first of all, no uh, one gospel tells you everything about the birth of Christ. And secondly, uh, some of the gospels don't even uh, say anything uh, about the birth of Christ. And so what does that tell us? One takeaway could be this. The significance of Jesus' birth is best understood in the totality of his life, teachings, death, and resurrection. So understanding the birth of Christ from the perspective of everything that he did his entire life gives his birth meaning. If we just celebrate the birth of Christ, there's not much to that. What's the point? It's like on Talladega Nights when they say, I love the little baby Jesus. Which, baby, which Jesus do you like? I like the baby Jesus. You know why most people like the baby Jesus? is because the baby Jesus has never ticked anybody off. He's never told him to the truth and say, unless you repent, unless you turn to me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So it's, if that's all we celebrate, it's meaningless without the whole picture of Jesus' life. And so that's what we do uh, when we look at the, um, the birth of Christ through four different perspectives. When I was um, preaching in Chicago about a year and a half ago, right during the middle of our preach, I was preaching to a group of several hundred leaders, and uh, God just gave me a picture, and so I stopped what I was preaching on, and I said this, you know, when I was a younger man, I had it all figured out. I look right down this line and say, this fits, this fits, this fits, this fits, I got it all figured out. And then you know what, you just grow up a couple years older, and then you go, oh, I could come from this viewpoint and say, oh, well... From this perspective, that's true as well. I'm not saying that all everything is truth. I'm just saying as we grow up, we can start to gain others' perspectives and see things from their viewpoint and these kind of things. So that's why I wanted to look at four Gospels, four very different guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, very representative of human population at, at, at the whole, and say, all right, we can look at truth. It's like a diamond, real something that's true. It's like a diamond. You can turn it around, and it's still the same diamond, but there's so many different ways and so many uh, different reflections from it uh, that we can learn. We could look at God's Word for, for thousands of years till uh, uh, eternity and still gain understanding into the Word of God because it's alive and it's true and it's eternal. And so we looked at a brief description of each gospel, Account And in Matthew, the story of Christmas is rooted in history. In Mark, the story of Christmas requires our repentance. And in Luke, the story of Christmas invites our worship. And in John, the story of Christmas restores our relationship. 
So wherever you are in your walk with God, maybe you just came to Jesus recently. Maybe this year was your year of your new birth in Christ where you said yes to Jesus. Uh, Maybe you did that decades ago and have walked faithfully since. Maybe you did it decades ago and you've kind of veered off course. Today is the day. Not this is the year. Today is the day to get back on track and say, I want to be right right on the center of your will for me, O God, from this time and, and forevermore. And so... Um, we concluded last week that Jesus was enough. There's four different accounts, yet one conclusion, and Jesus is sufficient. The sufficiency of God is one of his attributes, the sufficiency of God. And so intellectually, he's enough, according to Matthew, uh, because the Christmas story is rooted in history, he's enough uh, for us to understand that we're part of the big picture. We're part of God's plan. And morally, according to Mark, the Christmas story requires our repentance. And so if you want true freedom, it's found in Christ, whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And emotionally, according to Luke, uh, the story invites our worship to worship Almighty God like Mary did and like Elizabeth did and Zechariah and Anna and Simeon and the angels uh, above Bethlehem to worship God. And relationally, according to John, the Christmas story restores our relationship with God and gives us something to live for authentically without being a hypocrite, but truly following hard after God. And so I want to encourage you to keep up your faith. Keep up looking to Jesus. Uh, keep, keep on keeping on. Keep the main thing the main thing. Every cliche I can think of, keep Jesus the center uh, of your focus uh, during this Christmas season. You'll be a bright, shining light for all those that you come into contact with. So today, uh, we're going to continue that theme of looking at it from four different directions. And, but we're going to read the passage out of Matthew, starting in verse uh, 1, um, or chapter 1, verse 16. Now, the first 15 verses of Matthew are genealogy. If you've ever read in your Bible, and you come up to the point, if you're reading King James, it says, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. If you're reading more, one of the more modern versions, you go, and the, so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, and they were the son of so-and-so, and they were the son of so-and-so. All the way back to Adam, we can find genealogies. Well, Matthew starts this out because Matthew is a traditionalist. He's uh, speaking to the children of Israel. It's a big deal. And so we'll, we'll jump right in when he finishes that analogy. And he says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. That's the anointed one or the Christ, the one who will save us. Verse 17, all those listed above, that's all the genealogy, include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 generations from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Now, God is very detailed, uh, and he keeps track of the details. And when we discover these, it's not like they were missed from God. He knew that. Uh, but he always delights when, we, uh, when the truth is illuminated in us. We could, like I said, we could research the Bible. And isn't it interesting? There's 14 generations in the first phase and 14, and then 14 more. Uh, I think it's very interesting that we don't even know past our great great-grandparents sometimes. Sometimes we go a little bit further back if we go on Ancestry.com, but the more you go exponentially, uh, exponential twos, like two to the power of eight or 10 or 12 or 14, you're getting way up there where you have thousands of people. So we're all related to famous people. 
And a lot, in fact, a lot of us are, are related to each other that we don't know it. Uh, like, you know, they always say, so-and-so is related to so-and-so. They're the second, 17th cousin, twice removed, you know, and so, so what? And, and, um, but it's important to God, and here's why. Because the first 14 generations uh, from Abraham, where God said to us, I'm going to give you... Uh, I'm going to give you a promise. I'm going to give you a future. I'm going to give you hope. And so Abraham to, to David, 14 generations, where David was the king, the great king over Israel, a man after God's own heart, where Israel had dominion over the, the, the world there. They were the most prestigious uh, nation right there. They had the wealth and the intellect and the, and, and the resources and all those kind of things. And then from David onward to the Babylonian exile, there was 14 generations of a downward slide where they fell back into sin over and over and over again. And then they were at the bottom. And then from that uh, restoration after uh, exile to Babylon, then they 14 generations tell Jesus where they come back. And that paralle- uh, parallels us as believers. God created you for rulership. He didn't create you to be uh, stuck in some corner somewhere. He he created you to have a purpose and to have a reason. When he created Adam and Eve, he said, I want to give you dominion over this earth. And that's what he created you for. And then we as sinners, we fall away. We choose to go our own way. And we get down to the depths. And then God pulls us out and restores us and gets us back to this restoration. And that's only found in Christ. What a great picture we have there in the middle of of genealogies and those kind of things. Uh, so getting back to Matthew, verse 18, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Joseph and Mary were engaged, or, or the word is betrothed. Now their uh, engagement to a uh, to be married was different than our culture is today. They would have the father of the groom and the father of bride. They get together with the groom and bride, uh, potential groom and bride. They come together and make a contract, and there would be a payment, and there would be an agreement. And it doesn't sound very romantic to us today, the way we do it, but to them, that was the height of romance. And then uh, what they would do is they would be engaged, and that would be a binding contract. In fact, it would be so binding that you would have to get a divorce to separate from being engaged. So our engagements today aren't binding. Uh, but though, in those days, they were binding uh, contract. And then they would separate so that they would remain pure before the marriage. That still is valid for today. Young people, you want to remain pure until you get married. And married, God intended marriage for one man and one woman and for us to remain pure until that time. If you fail in that respect, God will forgive you if you truly repent and ask for his repentance. But our goal is, of course, the ideal, uh, to, and it can be done. There's many uh, marriages in this room where the, the couples remained pure until that day where they said, I do. So Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, remember he's of the lineage of David, all that genealogy, straight through the king. And and the Bible prophecy hundreds of years earlier said that, that Jesus, the Messiah, would come through the line of David. And so, uh, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you're to name him Jesus, for he will save his people 
from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. So this is the prophecy in the Old Testament uh, in Isaiah that uh, the angel is quoting to Joseph. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until she was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. So on Thursday night, Christmas Eve, we're going to read uh, the birth of Christ account from Luke. So um, we're going to take a look at these four Gospels again today, a little a different uh, angle than we did last week. And to most people, the story of the birth of Christ is they have this picture in their head, and that picture could have a star, and it could have a stable, or uh, according to the video we saw last week, it could be a cave. Um, it could be all kinds of nice little things, a little nativity scene under your Christmas tree. It could be the wise men there, and the shepherds, and the little lambs, and all those kind of things. All these things that we have, some of that's from the Bible, but some of it's just uh, from Christmas carols, or... Christmas stories that we may have heard. So the best place to look, of course, is God's Word. And so uh, there's parts that we treasure, parts that we like, but we want to make sure that we keep the account uh, straight and go to the true source. There's four very different accounts, yet they complement one another. They never uh, contradict one another. Each one has uh, its own ultimate perspective. So the first one we want to look at today is Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Now, See if you can relate to Mark. Mark was a man of action. He was a doer, not a talker. He got the job done. He was that kind of person, a man of action. If there's a problem, get in there and solve it, and then get back out again. A lot of firemen or ER nurses are kind of like those kind of people. And so this was Mark. He was a man of action. And those people really identify with freedom. They identify with being freedom. Those are not the kind of people that you want sitting behind a desk for 40 hours a week. That would drive them nuts. They want to get the job, go from task to task. And um, the Gospel of Mark was probably the first gospel written, an account of Jesus' life, uh, the first after Jesus had died and rose again. But most theologians agree that Mark's gospel represents the teachings and the speaking of Peter, uh, the apostle. And Mark and Peter were close buddies. Um, so the Gospel of Mark actually doesn't record anything about the birth of Jesus. The first mention of Jesus is when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And so um, what theologians call this is called a narrative of omission. That means the birth of Jesus was omitted. Do you know sometimes the loudest thing that you say is what you don't say? That's called a narrative of omission. It's you're saying something very loudly by not saying it. And so that's what that's called. Now, the reason is, is because Mark wrote to the, uh, his audience was the Romans. The Roman people, the Roman empire had conquered the known world. They were brutal. They were dictatorial. And to them, uh, some, to declare somebody is a king, like, like Matthew did, uh, um, and, and say that they came of a lineage of a king, that would be a big deal to Rome. So Mark kind of slid this under the radar, and Mark is talking about Jesus, um, who is a servant. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. We would expect somebody that's going to come and save the world will come with trumpets blowing and you know parades and all these kind of things. But Mark is showing uh, in, the, in the audience that he's talking to that Jesus came under the radar, secrecy thing, and it's this uh, narrative of omission where Jesus came to be the great servant. In Roman culture, it's not important where a servant is born or from which family he comes. It is his service that defines him. Or it is her service that defines her. It's what you do that's, it, that's important. And so this is the audience to whom uh, Mark is speaking. And the reason was, was uh, Rome was really divided into social classes. The haves and the have-nots. And the haves were a very minuscule little uh, percentage of the population. And we, we hear about that all the time. We hear it in our news media. It's in the conversation going around right now. It wasn't anything like that. It was way, way more separated. And so Jesus came in as a servant, and that would be a nobody. And um, so that's how he's being portrayed. The, Mark defines Jesus' mission and ministry by his service to others, that Jesus ultimately came to serve the world and to... Be, uh, die for us and to set us free. So we, here we go to Matthew. Now Matthew, you might relate to Matthew, he's a guy of tradition. It's like Tevia on Fiddler on the Roof. Traditions, right? That, have you ever seen that? I'm not doing it. I'll get Logan to do it. So um, that's almost diametrically opposite of Mark's account. Because Matthew goes in painstaking detail of saying where Jesus come, comes from. And the reason is, is that Matthew is writing to the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. And it's important. They were prophesied a king. They were prophesied a king from Bethlehem. They were prophesied a king from a virgin. They were prophesied a king that would be, come from Nazareth. They were prophesied all these uh, dozens and dozens of prophecies hundreds of years before were fulfilled in this one person of Jesus. Not one other human being in all history had all those prophecies apply to him. In fact, the, of the 48 major prophecies about Jesus' life, if they were all fulfilled in one person, that would be astronomically uh, impossible, akin to 0% chance. Like, um, take all the atoms in the universe and multiply those by a trillion, and there's still not one chance out of all that, of, of that happening in one person. You know what I'm talking about? The prophecies of Jesus? He would be a Jewish person. He would be of the tribe of Judah. He would be uh, from a town called Bethlehem. He'd be born of a virgin. He'd be called a Nazarene. He'd be laid in a, in a rich man's grave. He would rise again on the third. I mean, all these things. Who, who else does that apply to? All those prophecies hundreds of years before. So Matthew painstakingly details all those so that the Jewish people know this is the king who is prophesied about. And he's a person who's greater than David. And he's a, a better teacher than Moses. And this is the one we've been looking for and longing for and praying for. So uh, Matthew takes great care to show how the birth event of Jesus fulfills prophecies made in the Old Testament and makes use of these prophecies to present Jesus as a governor, the ruler of Israel, a prince, and a God's son. He goes on to say that wise men came and bare gifts, and they acknowledged who Jesus was. And so um, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he is Emmanuel, God with us. That is amazing. And then we take a look at Luke's account. Now, if you are the type of person that relates to Luke, Luke was a very logical guy. 
He had a very scientific, detailed mind. Accuracy was very, very important. Competency was very important to, to Luke. That was, he, he wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. And that's the entire history of the first century in, in, of the early church. And most theologians and most secular historians nowadays say that Luke was the most uh, prominent uh, historian just not even from a religious point of view, but a historical point of view, where he named names and he named titles and he named cities and dates and all these kind of things accurately to where secular historians will go back and look at Luke or Acts to get uh, uh, some background material on what they need. So Luke wrote his gospel primarily for a Gentile audience to focus on the traditionally marginalized and neglected people groups. So Luke said, I'm going to write an orderly account of Jesus' birth and his life. And so Luke's gospel is full of references to women, how important they were for the kingdom. And and women, I want to say this to you, that you're not marginalized. In fact, the world might say out there that if you are Christian, that that the church will try to put you down. It's exactly the opposite. It, Paul says there's no, there's no male or female in the kingdom. And in every nation of the world that acknowledges Christ, that as a Christian nation, nations can't actually become Christians, only people can, but people who generally have their foundation as a Judeo-Christian uh, background, that's where women have most freedom. That's where you don't have to walk around wearing some cover-up thing. That's where you actually have a vote. That's where you actually... Well, in all Christian nations around the world, that's where women's rights are being expanded and those kind of things. And so uh, uh, Jesus was for women. A woman came to see Jesus when he resurrected. He didn't go to a king. He didn't go to a governor. He didn't go to Caesar. He went not even to a man. He went to a woman. And I just want to say that Math, or Luke here is, is screaming loudly that there is no difference here between male and female, poor or rich, the marginalized people. He, Jesus ministered to children. He ministered to the sick. He ministered to the poor. He ministered to the prisoner. He ministered to the addict. All those people were welcomed in Jesus' arms because he said, I will give you worth and you belong here. There's a place for you here. Isn't that wonderful? So Luke's account is actually the longest of all the Gospels because he goes into such detail. And um, one of the writers says, a beautiful birth narrative of Jesus in Luke's Gospel illustrates the complete canonic act of God in Jesus, born among the poor and rejected, bringing good news of peace and kindness to all. A canonic act, canonic means that you empty yourself. Here was Almighty God in heaven, full of all glory, all honor to Him, and then He gave all that up to live as, as one of us. And then we come to John. Now, you might be the kind of person that relates to John. John was very much full of heart, we would say. He was an emotional guy, and that's okay. He, was, he very much valued experience. We sang a song about experiencing your presence. I don't want to just go through life with just uh, flippant experiences, but if it's Almighty God engaging me, yeah, I want to experience that. And so uh, he records uh, the birth of Jesus uh, out of heaven. He doesn't actually, John doesn't talk about the birth of Jesus like Matthew and Luke do. He goes back to the beginning and he says, in the beginning. 
Now, he knew very well that the very first phrase in Genesis of the Old Testament says, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God said, let there be light. And so John does the same parallel, sort of like the second creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he said that this light shone among us. And so Jesus was a light in the world, again, to shine on darkness, where we were dark and and without uh, form and void, uh, and darkness was on the face of the deep, like in the Old Testament. It's like us, that's where we were, and Jesus' light shines on us. And and John says, "And, and the Word, that's Almighty God, the Word became flesh, that's Jesus, and dwelt among us. And we beheld Him. We encountered Jesus, the only begotten of God. Isn't that beautiful? And so... Uh, for John, the birth of Jesus starts in heaven, so to speak, even though he's eternal, but he put it in those words for us, that, that Jesus was God and is God and always has been. And so John's gospel, he's writing to the Greek-speaking Gentiles across the Roman Empire, and he explains that Jesus, the Word, becomes flesh and chooses to dwell uh, with us, and that we have been witnesses of this, and we've witnessed that he's full of grace and truth. I love that description about Jesus, I think, almost more than anything. It's that thing where some of us lean toward grace. Grace is where we cut some slack for people, right? Don't you want people to cut slack with you? All right? Yeah? And uh, I, would, I would want people, to, uh, I don't want people to cut as much slack for me, is I cut for them sometimes. All right? And so Jesus was full of grace, full of compassion, those kind of things. And the Bible says that he was also full of truth. And some of us lean more toward the truth side. Truth is more black and white, you know, a little bit rigid like this. But he wasn't one or the other. And some of us, or all of us, fall somewhere in between there. Jesus was full of both. He didn't lean toward one or lean toward the other like we do. He was full of grace and truth. At the same time, he was Almighty God. So John clearly communicates that Jesus' birth is the most significant event in the history of the world. That is amazing. God became flesh and so is shining his light in darkness, an event that mirrors the creation of the heavens and the earth. Isn't that awesome? So let's... uh, let's Draw these to a conclusion, these four, again. So there's four Gospels in the New Testament, and they each have a unique perspective, yet they have a complementary picture of Jesus, and it's evident in the way they record or don't record or omit the birth of Jesus. So Matthew presents Jesus as the King of the Jews. The King of the Jews. This is our King. Now, we, as Americans have a little bit of a handicap as far as royalty goes. It's part of our national culture. We kind of kicked all the royalty out a couple hundred years ago, right? All right, so we have this thing where we raise everybody's created equal, and there's no royalty or unroyalty and those kind of things. We raise our kids to say, yes, sir, like this. Well, sir is for nobility. And yet everybody's nobility in America, and everybody sits down at a restaurant and demands to get their water within 30 seconds, or they're saying, what kind of service is this? Everybody is a king, all right, in America. And so Terry and I were in England a few years ago, and uh, we were walking around London, and we were on this curb, and there was like two or three 
little old ladies, and uh, they were just standing there like this. And Terry, she goes, what are you guys doing? And they go, we're waiting for the queen. Terry goes, oh, when's she coming? And they go, like four hours from now. And we go, oh. So we went and did some other stuff. And we came back, and the place was packed, thousands of people. And so we're standing through, and pretty soon, out of Buckingham Palace comes this this carriage, and it's all cobblestones, and the horses with their horseshoes on. So it's loud clanking of six horses, and then there's about 20 of these royal guard on their horses, and it's very regal and royal, and they come, and she's you know doing her parade wave, and Prince Philip is sitting next to her, and, and uh, you know... In America, we would go, yeah, go Liz, go. I know Terry wanted to do that, but she, but everybody, everybody was just like this. Go, queen, go, like this. And just, just like, and some people would, would, would do this as she went by, and they just have an understanding of royalty. That's our queen, like this. And so we have a little bit of a handicap. Well, she went and got President uh, Jacques Chirac. He was, used to be president of France. The helicopter came down like about a half a mile away. She picked him up. She kicked Prince Philip out, and then she came up with the president back up again, and we, you know, like this. And so we don't understand it, but the Jews were looking for their king who would save them from Rome. They, they, were, they were looking kind of for the wrong thing. The Savior, the Messiah, and Jesus is our Savior, and he is our Messiah, and he is our king. He's the king, and we are not. When you have a kingdom, kingdom of God, you have a king. And when you have a king, you have subjects. We are his subjects. We need a revelation, a greater understanding that Jesus Christ is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And Luke presents Jesus as a humane savior who comes for the downcast, who comes for the downtrodden, who comes for the lonely, who comes for the marginalized, who comes for the little kids, who comes for the sick and the disparaging, who comes for those in financial ruin. He comes to pick people up out of the gutter. And he says, you are worth something. And I came for you. That's what he says. And Mark presents Jesus as the Lord that serves in secret. He presents Jesus as the God of this universe, yet he walks in humility. He could have demanded anything, and yet he chose to serve. And the Bible says that Jesus became a servant to us. He didn't come to be served. If anybody deserved to be served, it was Jesus. But he came to serve. And we can learn and embrace that humility uh, that Jesus demonstrated. And John presents Jesus as God, the Almighty One, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. So I want to encourage you, look at the birth of Christ this season, not just in isolation, but in the totality of Jesus' life, his, his, his death, his resurrection, the way he spoke to people, the way he interacted with people. Aren't you glad that we serve a Savior who's alive? And it's not just the little baby Jesus. We serve an awesome and almighty God. Father, thanks for this word. Lord, thank you for this season. I pray that we would worship you and serve you to a greater t- degree, to a, to a level that we've not experienced yet personally. I pray that we would worship you and honor you and walk humbly uh, before you as we serve others, 
Father, I pray that we would be filled with awe in your presence, for you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, thank you for bringing so many back to you this year. Thank you that over the years you've demonstrated faithfulness to this church and to the body of Christ around the world. God, we love you. We worship you. We honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.